Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Unlikely Heroes. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Mount St. Helens was once one of the most majestic mountains located in the continental United States. It was planted, it is planted, excuse me, in the Cascade Mountain Range of southwestern Washington State. Mount St. Helens was uh, the peaceful centerpiece of that region's uh, bustling logging and fishing and hunting industries. Signs that this was about to change began to emerge on March 20th, 1980, when a 4.2 magnitude earthquake grumbled beneath the mountain. Three days later, a 4.0 magnitude earthquake rattled the landscape beneath the mountain and continued at a rate of three quakes per hour until March 27th. On March 27th, a small eruption released steam 6,000 feet into the air, appearing to relieve the pressure that was building underneath this volcano. But over the next few weeks, Smaller eruptions continued as a bulge began to take shape on the north face of the mountain, indicating that magma was building up underneath the surface. Finally, on the morning of May 18, 1980, at 8.32 a.m., it was a Sunday morning, Mount St. Helens violently erupted, instantly destroying everything within an eight-mile radius the 24 megaton blast of thermal energy, get this, it was 1,600 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It damaged 230 square miles around the mountain, obliterated 200 homes, wiped out 185 miles of roads, killed 57 people, and became the most destructive volcanic event in U.S. history. I still remember when I was in middle school back in central Illinois and being in our classroom and seeing the ash cloud come across the country in a a front and our science teacher talking about it and just being amazed at ash on our cars and windows and stuff in Illinois from a volcano that erupted in Washington. I just, it's just, it was amazing how much ash that, that, that volcano produced. Well, in the, leak, in the weeks leading up to the eruption of Mount St. Helens, geologists went to great lengths to uh, warn local authorities that a cataclysmic uh, volcanic event was imminent. And so the governor of Washington declared a state of emergency. This then led authorities to establish a perimeter around the mountain. The National Guard evacuated residents and set up roadblocks. Sadly, these were easily avoided by using the region's unguarded logging roads. The greater tragedy than the lives that were lost on that fateful day at Mount St. Helens is this, there are more lives that could have been saved. Although many residents evacuated, 
a substantial number ignored the warnings and refused to leave. One in particular was 84-year-old Harry Randall Truman, no relation to the former president. Mr. Truman became famous for his refusal to heed warnings by leaving the mountain. He pridefully claimed to know more than the geologists about Mount St. Helens. And after the national media made him an icon in the weeks leading up to the eruption, he was an icon for standing up to big government. Well, Truman became a thorn in the side of local authorities because several other residents followed his lead and stayed. This frustrated the local authorities because they wanted to get everybody out. In the end, 27 of the 57 people that perished on Mount St. Helens, including Mr. Truman, were never found. One of the many byproducts of our inherited sin nature is our inclination to ignore warnings. Even when all the evidence says we should do otherwise. We're continuing our series in the Hall of Faith today called Unlikely Heroes. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And to pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder you received when you came in. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We've got plenty of Bibles we can loan you so that you can follow along with us. For those of you that are visiting today or maybe you've been gone for a couple weeks, the rest of the series is on our website and on our podcast. So if you want to listen to some of the previous messages in this series or maybe at least week one to get a context and big picture of what it's all about, you can do so there. In brief, though, the book of Hebrews is written to a young Jewish audience of new Christ followers. They they were a group of people saved out of the Jewish faith who were struggling to continue following Christ in the midst of intense persecution. And so in order to encourage them to press on in the faith, the author of Hebrews recounts the accomplishments of several Old Testament saints in hopes that it might inspire or motivate them to press on in following Christ. And so for this reason, Hebrews chapter 11 is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith. Our our theme verse for this series is Hebrews 11.6. You see it there on your handout and on the screen behind me. Let's read it out loud together. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now we learned in week one that faith is simply believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. It's more than gaining a knowledge of God's word or professing Christ as your savior. It's internalizing the word so that it changes the way we think. It changes our affections, which in turn should change our behavior. That's that's living faith. That's what faith is. Doing so is pleasing to the Lord because living faith complements him. It's our agreement 
with what he's already said about himself. And so that is why the Lord commends living faith, as we see here in Hebrews 11. The author of Hebrews is profiling past faith heroes because they can help us exercise present faith. In essence, he's saying, hey, look, you can continue and press on no matter how difficult it gets. You can walk with Jesus Christ in a dark world because these faith heroes that he's listing here in Hebrews 11, they too walked with the Lord in the face of perilous circumstances. And so one of the most difficult times to exercise living faith is when God's word tells us to do something that seems inconceivable and incomprehensible. Thus, our big idea for today is this. I I like to call the big idea, for those that are visiting, the sermon in one sentence. It's, it's, It's my main idea I'm gonna try and prove during our time together, and I hope it sticks in your noggin when you leave today. And that is that living faith takes God's word seriously. Living faith takes God's word seriously. Every day, our safety comfort and health are protected by warning signs, whether it be a weather alert, a traffic sign, or a food label. We receive warnings from people who care about us or they've been told they're supposed to care about us (laughs) so that we don't lose our safety or comfort or get harmed. In a similar fashion, the scriptures are filled with warnings written by a God who loves us, who wants what's best for us, and knows way more than we do. The hero we're going to look at today demonstrated living faith by heeding a warning from the Lord when no one else would. And so as we continue our guided tour down the vaulted cathedral hallway of the Hall of Faith, Our next stop is in front of the statue of Noah. So with that, if you would look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 with me. The next hero the author mentions is Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I have to admit, I sometimes get concerned that the popularity of Noah's Ark as a children's story has diminished the historicity of this man's life to sort of more of a a legend. I have to admit and be honest with you, when my kids were little, they... They had the popular Fisher-Price Little People Noah's Ark set. Uh, I mean, I think if you were saved in America, you have to have one of these, plus a VeggieTales set and all the VeggieTales videos. I mean, you pretty much can't be an evangelical without having these. But uh, we also had the Noah's Ark storybook, and, and um, I remember stepping on saliva-covered little people in our living room many times that belonged to this Fisher Price uh, set, and I uh, also remember reading the Noah's Ark storybook at bedtime. However, we need to remember that Noah was a real man of God. 
a husband, a father, and a grandfather who faced a never-seen-before act of God, and I'm using an insurance term there, with living faith. And so notice in Hebrews 11, verse 7, the author says that he responded with reverent fear. You know, warnings are given with the intent of eliciting a response. Uh, They're supposed to initiate a response from us. They are never intended to fall on deaf ears. And we see here that Noah's faith enabled him to respond to the Lord's warning with appropriate action and urgency. The adjective reverent is important to note here because it tells us that Noah didn't act out of an anxious fear, but rather a respect for God's awesomeness, his holiness, and his power. Next, we see that he condemned the world. Now, that could be easily misunderstood. It doesn't mean that Noah pronounced condemnation on the world as though he was the world's judge. Instead, it means that by comparison, his obedience put the rest of the world to shame. It condemned them for their unbelief and their disobedience to God. Now, let's flip back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6, where the rest of Noah's story is. And let's look and see in Genesis chapter 6 what Noah did exactly to get himself into the hall of faith. Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 9 to 14. Please follow along with me. Moses writes, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Verse 10, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh was corrupted their way on the earth, and God said in verse 13 to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Through them, behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now I'm going to stop there. When I study the scriptures, there are at least two questions that I try to ask as I look at a verse or a set of verses. The the first question is, I try to ask, what is the passage or the set of verses saying about God? For example, do the verses I'm looking at reveal anything about God's heart or his character? And then the next question I try to ask is, what, what is this verse or verses saying about man? What's it saying about us? And then I can usually move on from there. I share this with you because if you use these two questions, I'm giving them to you for free. You can uh, never hear a boring sermon, and you'll never have a boring morning devotion time. Here's what I was able to glean from the Noah story by just asking these two questions. There are three main points on your outline. The first one is this. The Lord gives warnings because he loves The Lord gives warnings because he loves. Interestingly, 
This is the first time the words righteous and blameless are used in the Bible. This gives us a sense of just how dark the times were when Noah was living, and it's just a couple chapters in a few hundred years after the fall in Genesis 3. But from here on out, these two words are used numerous times throughout the scriptures to describe those who have a strong relationship with the Lord. They are called blameless, or they are called righteous. Verse 9, Genesis 6, verse 9, says Noah was a righteous man. It, it means that he was in a right relationship with God, and that he was justified by God because of their relationship. As is the case with all people who have a relationship with the Lord, Noah's righteousness, it didn't come from doing good works, but rather his good works were a natural byproduct of his righteousness. Notice also he was blameless in his generation. Whereas righteous describes Noah's standing with God, blameless describes his standing before men. The Hebrew word that's used here for blameless means to be complete or to be whole or to have integrity. It doesn't mean that Noah was sinless or perfect. Only Jesus achieved sinless perfection on this earth. Instead, when the text says that Noah was blameless in his generation, it means that the world couldn't find anything glaring about the guy that they could hold against him. And that's because there was such harmony between what Noah believed and how he lived, it was hard to find any dirt on him. Now these verses contain two subtle observations that we also learned from Enoch last week. Enoch, you might remember, is the great-grandfather of Noah. And I shared last week uh, two observations, and they also apply here. And it's this... Uh, just as his great-grandfather Enoch did, Noah and his family walked with God in a dark time. I really don't want you to miss this. It's really important because context is king when we study the scriptures. In verse 11, notice it says in Genesis 6:11, the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. It's another reminder that walking with the Lord all by yourself in a dark place it may be very difficult, but it is possible. And those who do so may face ridicule or be uh, subject to peer pressure to sin. However, those who walk with the Lord in a dark place also get noticed by God. And they find favor with him, as you see in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The other thing, the next thing that Noah and his family did, that Enoch also did, was they walked with God by themselves. They walked with God by themselves. The characters in the Hall of Faith not only had a living faith in common, but they also experienced seasons of loneliness. Besides Enoch and Noah, we know that Abraham and Moses and David also dealt with loneliness. This is because it's impossible to please God and to please the world and be popular. 
the call to walk with the Lord in the scriptures was always a call to be set apart from the world, to be different, which then subjects us to being rejected just like Jesus and the apostles were. This reminds me of something uh, author Eugene Peterson uh, once said, closeness to God sometimes means alienation from men. Closeness to God sometimes means alienation from men. Now, I need to make a clarification here that I wish I had made last week. I was thinking about this after I went home last week uh, regarding this issue of loneliness. I don't want the introverts listening to my voice to hear this and to think, woo, totally awesome. I now have a biblical justification for avoiding people. No, 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 no. You need people in your life, okay? I also don't want the extroverts to hear me say this and go, oh, great, what? You mean I got to give up being around people in order to walk with the Lord? No, no, no. You need people too, so don't panic. The point is this. Faith heroes never let their relationships with people outrank their relationship with the Lord. So if they ever face a scenario that requires them to choose between pleasing people and pleasing the Lord, they choose the Lord. And for that reason, they may experience seasons of loneliness. And they do so gladly because they'd rather be lonely than forsake the one who promised never to forsake them. So, how is the Lord sending a flood loving? I thought you'd never ask. The Lord lovingly chose to send a flood in order to save mankind from self-destruction. And he lovingly chose Noah in order to save him from the flood. The flood in Genesis is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament gospel. You see, when God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross, God's wrath and love intersected on the cross at Calvary. The bloody, gruesome death that Jesus died reveals God's hatred for sin, while at the same time demonstrating his love for sinners. In the same way, the flood in Genesis reveals God's hatred for sin, while at the same time demonstrating his love for sinners in sparing Noah. So the answer to the question, what do these verses reveal about God's heart, is, well, he hates sin, but he loves sinners. And he can't avoid one to do the other. And because he's God, he finds ways to do both. He punishes sin because he's just and he's holy. And he loves sinners because he's merciful and gracious. And so, living faith takes God's word seriously, just like Noah did. Now, I'm going to summarize for the sake of time the rest of chapter 6. In verses 15 to 21, the Lord provides Noah with the uh, blueprints for the ark and instructions on what to take with him. 
Uh, theologians have uh, dissected these verses uh, ad nauseum and uh, pretty much believe, I think they've reached a consensus that the ark was about the length of one and a half football fields, 75 feet wide and four stories high. He had three decks, over one million cubic feet of space, and could hold around 850 railroad car, boxcars. In other words, it was about the size of a modern oil tanker or aircraft carrier. I've been watching a lot of aircraft carrier documentaries on YouTube lately. That's a pretty big boat right there. I've always been fascinated with aircraft carriers, but I, so I was, it was funny. I had been watching a lot of aircraft carrier documentaries this past week, and then I read this last night, and I went, wow, that's a big, that's a big aircraft carrier back in Genesis 6, man. Wow. Like, that's pretty amazing he was able to do that. So look at uh, chapter 6, verse 22, and uh, I'm going to pick up here. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Then chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. In verse 5, And Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Here's number two on your outline. Noah took God seriously because he believed. Noah took God seriously because he believed. I have two verses underlined in my Bible that you might want to underline in yours. It's chapter 6, verse 22, which is the first verse I read in this section. And then notice the repeated, almost similar, same verse in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, and Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Living faith always produces loving obedience to the Lord. Noah was tasked with a difficult assignment of building a boat that never existed before because it was going to rain like it never had before. But that didn't matter. Noah's mindset was simply, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, I'm doing it. Just, that's it. There's no, he he didn't debate, he didn't hem and haw, he didn't say I need to pray about it, I need to talk to my wife, none of that. He just did it. Because living faith always produces loving obedience, the inverse is also true. Disobedience proves the absence of faith. You see, when we don't do what God's word says, we really don't believe who he is. Now, it would be difficult to come up with a better summation of a believer's life than what we see here in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 22, or chapter 7, verse 5. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if at the end of your life, at your funeral service, the minister, when he's doing your eulogy, if he would say, 
here lies Dave or Doretha or Bob or Jen. They loved the Lord and they did all the Lord commanded them. Or maybe you could have it engraved on your headstone. Here lies Jacob, Lisa, Carrie, Maya, Lee, Karen. He or she did all that the Lord commanded them. I know I'd be thrilled with that. That's, that's sufficient. Just say that. He did all the Lord had commanded him. Done. That's a great life right there. Great life. This kind of faith, though, is still important for the believer today because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 42. If you don't have that on your outline, I can't remember if I put that down for you. You might want to jot it down. It is worth reading later. I'm going to read it for you quickly. Um, Matthew 24, verses 36 to 42. In Matthew 24, Jesus validates the historicity of Noah's flood but he also uses it as an illustration for his own return. So Jesus says this, Now concerning the day and the hour, no one knows regarding when he's going to come back. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Living faith takes God's word seriously because God always keeps his word. And Jesus said, my return is going to come like Noah's flood did. And there are going to be some that are left behind because they did not know me. Next, look back at Genesis chapter 7. Let me just summarize real quick here. Verses 6 to 24. In the rest of chapter 7, it describes the flood. We're told that it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Every living creature on the earth was wiped out. And then the waters slowly receded over the course of 300 days. In the first 19 verses of chapter 8, it describes the receding of the waters. And Noah and his family and the creatures in the ark step out into a new world. And so we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I gain again, excuse me, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Here's the final point in your outline. Number three, the Lord blessed Noah because he was devoted. The Lord blessed Noah because he was devoted. It's worth noting that Noah, the first thing he did after getting off the ark, having been on there for more than a year, he built an an altar and he worshiped the Lord. Noah was a well-rounded believer. I find it interesting that he walked with the Lord in the first half of chapter 6. He worked for the Lord in the second half. He waited on the Lord during the flood in chapter 7, and then he worshiped the Lord here in chapter 8. One of the other ways that God blessed Noah was by using him to restart or reboot the human race. What an amazing honor that is. I'm going to start all over again using your family. Look at chapter 9, verses 8 to 15. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. Now, ESV uses bow. Other translations say rainbow. But I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. What a tremendous honor for Noah. God made a covenant with him and then sealed and commemorated the covenant by making rainbows. So that every time when we see a rainbow in the sky, we can remember hey, that's when God promised he would never again wipe out all the living creatures on the earth. Well, here's a couple applications as we close. Uh, Applications answer the question, what must I do now that I've heard this, now that I've looked at this? We're called by God to be doers of the word. And so here's, here's one application that comes to mind, the first one. Learn and apply God's word. Learn and apply God's word. Just as a newly licensed driver needs to learn the rules of the road and traffic signs in order to be a safe driver, Christ followers need to be lifelong students of God's word in order to know the signs and warnings from God. What he expects, what he loves, what he hates. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in Thessalonica, do not quench the Spirit. Now this is often used as a, it's often misinterpreted, unfortunately, as, hey man, like don't put a damper on my excitement for the Lord, man. Hey, don't turn the music down in church, but that's not what it meant. In the context of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul was saying your responsiveness to God's word will determine how much the Holy Spirit can work in your church. That's what he meant. And so the long-term risk of quenching the spirit by ignoring the preaching of the word or not applying it, not, not taking it in and committing to do it, is that each time we do that, it becomes easier to do it again. You see, quenching the spirit by ignoring God's word causes a callus to begin to develop on our hearts. And each time we reject the spirit's prompting through the word and we ignore its warnings and we ignore its call to do and be certain things, we desensitize our hearts to future promptings. And so let's commit to learn and apply God's word and to do it instead of going, nah, I don't want to do that one. Uh, hit me up the next time, Lord. <laughs> It'll be harder to give in to the Spirit's promptings. Here's a second application. Fear God instead of man. Fear God instead of man. One often overlooked secret that helped Noah obey the Lord in dark times is that he feared the Lord instead of fearing man. He didn't care what the world thought about him back then. He only cared what the Lord thought. You see, if I could be honest with you, for some of you listening to my voice right now, the first step you need to take in exercising living faith is choosing to fear God instead of fearing man. Your fear of people is stunting your spiritual growth. It's drowning your faith and limiting what God can do in your life. And sadly, what I have found over the years in ministry and discipling and counseling people is that many people, it's so ingrained in their heart to fear man that they don't even know they do it. And so I want to encourage you to do some self-examination, or as I like to say, become your own archaeologist and excavate your heart and make sure that you fear the Lord and not man. Making this switch is one of the most freeing things you can do. This is why I think Oswald Chambers once wrote this. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. So fear God instead of man. Just as we should take warning seriously in our physical life, we should do the same in our spiritual life because there's a stubborn, old, 
Harry Truman in all of us. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for Noah's example. Thank you, Lord, for his boldness, his love for you, his fear of you is exceptional and exemplary. Father, please, would you, by your grace and by your spirit, build into us that same boldness and commitment to follow you no matter where you lead, to do no matter what you say, and to trust you when we cannot see. Father, I want to just pray for those right now that might really be struggling in their faith. They, they might be struggling as they face what seems to be overwhelming circumstances. They want to see how things are going to turn out so they can feel better. But Lord... We know, as we've been seeing here in Hebrews 11, living faith is believing in the unseen. So please, Father, grow their faith. Bless them with uh, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And show up in demonstrable ways so that they can give you all the praise and glory. And Lord, for those who might be listening today who don't know Christ as their Savior, please, would you help them to take that step into saving faith? Would you help them, Lord, even though they can't see Jesus, would you help them, Lord, to feel and sense that he is still alive, because he is, and that he desires a personal relationship with them? We cannot thank you enough, Lord, that by repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we can have a relationship with you. We can have access to your throne room in prayer. And we can have the comfort that nothing is wasted in our lives because you give us purpose. Father, please make yourself known to those that don't know you yet. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.